You're listening to The Seventh, Jesus' Words to His Church, a new sermon series by Crosspoint Peachtree City. For more information, please visit us at www.crosspointptc.com. Let me go ahead and read this morning's passage, and we'll pray, and we'll jump in, and we'll just get to work. It says this, beginning in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the Lord in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot or cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. God, again, we give thanks for the scriptures. We give thanks for the book of Revelation. We don't want to be a church that runs from the difficult books of the Bible. We're grateful for all of scripture. Submit our lives to the full authority of the scriptures and specifically this morning, uh, to Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Holy Spirit, would you uh, work in ways that I can't possibly uh, work? Would you uh, open eyes to see uh, where eyes are blinded? Would you open ears to hear where there's a deafness of hearing spiritually? Uh, would you open our hearts to receive your word this morning? Would, would you uh, help us by the power of the gospel to walk out a changed people who live lives for your glory and our joy? Lift these things up to you, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, so from week one, and with each preceding week, I put this prayer before us um, as a church, because I think it encompasses the the very uh, structure of the letters that we've been looking at for the past couple of months, and so my prayer for us has been this, and I hope it's your prayer as well if you've been walking with us through this series. It's this, Jesus, encourage me in that which is commendable. Rebuke me in that which is dishonorable, and above all, help me to see you more and more for who you truly are, that we want to get a glimpse of the king, and we believe that by seeing his person and work that, that we're going to be compelled to then live lives in honor of our, our good and sovereign king. And so that's my prayer for us throughout the course of this series. That's my prayer for us this morning, that God would open our eyes. As we jump in, we've done this week in and week out. We've looked at the context. We've looked at these various cities that these letters have been written to because we as a church believe that every word is written in the context of a sentence. Every sentence is written in the context of a paragraph. Every paragraph is written in the context of a chapter. Every chapter in the context of a book and so forth and so on. And so we don't want to just take verses out of context, slap them onto coffee mugs and the backs of t-shirts and just go about our business, but rather we want to take a look at the full context in which uh, various passages of scripture have been written uh, as we dive in. And so we're going to do that this morning as well. And so this morning we look at the city and the church uh, of Laodicea. 
So a little bit of background that might be helpful to know. Um, Laodicea had a high allegiance to Rome. And so practically every building and statue in the city was dedicated to a Roman emperor. They worshipped a number of Greco-Roman gods and goddesses. So similar to many of the cities that we've looked at thus far. Laodicea was a commercially prosperous city. And so they were actually the major banking center of Asia Minor. So if you were going to shoot a heist film back in first century, uh, the known world, you were going to shoot that film in Laodicea. If, if you were going to rob a bank, it was going to take place in the city of Laodicea. Laodicea was a major player in the industry of making garments of fine black wool. And so they had, had black sheep, which were very unique compared to the surrounding areas. And so the garments that they would make were very different, the colors that they had to work with. And so they were able to sell the garments that they would make at a higher price. And so they did well economically and commercially. Laodicea was the home of a medical school that specialized in creating eye ointments and salves, both for cosmetic and medicinal purposes. You can imagine, as we're talking about the lukewarm church, which is where we're going this morning, that there would be a bit of historical context that has to do with the water source of the city. And that's true, that Laodicea had no water source. And so they created aqueducts to bring in water from outside of the city. This is what an aqueduct looks like. So uh, maybe you've seen one of these structures before. Maybe if you're a world traveler, you're going, oh, that's what that is. I thought it was a bridge. No, it actually carries water from one place to another place. If you were to stand on top of that very structure, this is what you would see. This would be your view. And water would run by way of gravity from one place to another, bringing water into an area that didn't have its own water source. And so for Laodicea, she was surrounded by two cities that did have water sources. One was the city of Colossae. Um, That's where the church existed that Paul wrote to. When you read the book of Colossians, uh, that was the city of Colossae. And that particular city was known for its cold, refreshing water source on the one hand. And, And yet nearby was also the city of Hierapolis, which was a city that was known for its medicinal therapeutic hot springs. And by way of gravity and geography alone... Laodicea drew its water from the hot springs of Hierapolis. Now, tuck that away. That's going to matter in just a minute when we move further throughout this text. The church itself, as we look at the city and kind of get smaller and we look at the church, this church was likely the the most well-known church of all the seven that we will have looked at as we finish up this series in a couple weeks. Um, Mentioned in the book of Colossians several times, we're, we're actually told that the apostle Paul prayed for the church in Laodicea often, according to Colossians chapter 2. So they had apostolic intercession in their favor, on the one hand. Um, we're told that Paul actually told the Colossian church to pass the letter that he wrote to them onto the church in Laodicea and when they were done with it. So they likely were the first people to read the book of Colossians outside of the Colossian church herself. So they were set up for great success, right? You would think uh, you have an apostle praying for you and you have the original manuscripts of the New Testament in your hand. You're going to knock this one out of the park. And yet, despite the prayers of the apostle Paul, despite the fact that they had access to New Testament original manuscripts, this church is the one that gets absolutely no commendation from Jesus, no encouragement from Jesus. Even for the church in Sardis, you remember these guys, if you were around a couple weeks ago, the reputation managers, the guys who the external didn't match the internal, even those guys had a remnant of faithful followers of Jesus, Jesus said. But for the church in Laodicea, there's no encouragement. There's no mention of a faithful remnant of Christians In this church, Jesus goes straight to the correction, straight to the rebuke in verses 15 through 17. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. 
Would that you would either be cold or hot, just one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, Jesus says, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered and need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This would be my summary of the problem going on in the church in Laodicea. Self-sufficiency has led to self-delusion and uselessness for the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. This would be my summary of what's going on in this church. Self-sufficiency has led to self-delusion and uselessness for the kingdom of God. That word Laodicean, this is not how you want to be remembered. That word is actually found in dictionaries. If you pick up Webster's Dictionary or, or any dictionary, really, you go online right now and Google it as I'm preaching, the word Laodicean, you'll find that it's used in context outside of the church now, that it means lukewarm or indifferent in religion or politics, that people looked at this city and this church and determined that when you have an indifferent disposition towards something, an apathetic disposition towards something, we're going to go grab that very city's name, that very church's name, and we're going to use that in our own vocabulary today. That to be Laodicean is to be lackadaisical, it's to be complacent, it's to be apathetic, it's to be inoculated, you might say. You guys know what inoculation is? Um, it's, it's a medical term, it means to introduce a disease agent into a healthy individual to produce a mild form of the disease which is followed by immunity. So if you've ever had a flu shot, that's what's going down, right? You're getting a mild form of, of the flu strain so that your body can then recognize it and fight off the full attack when, when the beast actually shows up in full force. I would argue, and especially in our Bible Belt context, that many are inoculated to Jesus Christ. So they've had just enough of Jesus that they don't need all of him. Many in our context believe they know the gospel and are experiencing the present tense power of the gospel when they're not. They've got a mild form of the gospel, just enough for them to fight off the real strand for the remainder of their days. And this is why it's possible to sit in a seat for months and months and months, Sunday after Sunday, maybe even years, and never experience more of Jesus. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you know people who are there right now. That many of us are conditioned to fight him off strangely. That we're good with a mild form of Jesus, just enough to feel good about ourselves. But try to inject us with more of him, and our souls go into immunization mode. Sam Storms, in his commentary, says it this way. He says, to be lukewarm is to live as if what you presently know and experience of Christ is enough. No need or desire to press in further. No need or desire to seek after God. That's inoculation to the gospel. The, the Laodicean church was inoculated toward Jesus. They were uh, apathetic. They were lukewarm toward Jesus and his gospel. And in our context, it's very possible that many of us sitting in this very room find ourselves in the same place. Give me a life enhancing Jesus. Don't give me a life altering Jesus. I encountered that in youth, youth ministry for years. People would drop their kids off and, and the, the cry without them... Um, explicitly verbalizing it was, would you just clean my kid up a little bit? Would you sanitize them for Jesus? But don't turn them into some radical that actually loves him with all of their heart and all of their soul and all of their mind because there's no telling what they may then do. The trajectory of their very lives might change. So would you just give them a little dose, a little Jesus shot, and let them be on their way? Some argue that uh, the language of, of hot and cold and lukewarm is meant to function as a, a temperature gauge. And so um, 
the idea is that uh, to be cold is to be a pagan, to be an atheist, to be a devil worshiper, to be hot is to be a zealous Christian who's living a life on mission, who's preaching the gospel to themselves, uh, who's repenting of sin and excavating idols and, and looking to the person and work of Jesus with great faith. And then the lukewarm are those in between the devil worshipers and those who are actually preaching the gospel to themselves. And maybe you've heard the text unpacked that way before, somewhere along the way. Um, I don't think that makes a whole lot of sense for Jesus to say it would be better for you to be um, an atheist, a devil worshiper, than to find yourself uh, in the family of God feeling apathy, uh, feeling indifference toward Jesus. I think we would all agree that I'd rather be in the family no matter what my life looks like uh, than to be on the outside. And I think that makes sense in context as well. This is where context matters, that um, if you go back to the very context of the city that I just unpacked, that Colossae was a city known for its cold, refreshing water source on the one hand. Hierapolis was a city known for its medicinal therapeutic hot springs on the other hand, and Laodicea drew its water from the medicinal hot springs of Hierapolis. And you can imagine by the time it made its way through those aqueducts to the city of Laodicea, it would be tepid in temperature, right? It would be lukewarm. I don't think Jesus is saying your, spir- uh, your spiritual temperature gauge is off so much. I think he's saying you're useless. You're, you're not functioning with any sort of purpose right now. That cold water is refreshing to the body, Hot water is therapeutic to the sick who are in need of healing. But you guys, the church in Laodicea, you don't bring refreshment to the spiritually weary on the one hand, like the cold waters of Laodicea, and you don't bring spiritual healing to the sick on the other hand, like the medicinal hot waters of Hierapolis. That's what inoculation does, right? That's what apathy does. That's what indifference does. It it renders you useless in the furthering of God's kingdom and his mission. And Jesus can't stomach a useless, apathetic Christianity, which is no Christianity at all, really. The tepid water is disgusting, right? You, we all, all of us coffee drinkers in the room, we know that coffee is delicious when it is freezing cold, and it's delicious when it's piping hot. The, the one way you don't want a cup of coffee is when it's sat on the counter for about four hours, right? Just disgusting. You put your lips to it, and unless you're just absolutely sleep-deprived to the point that I am right now with a 12-day-old, uh, I should say, um, you're not drinking that stuff, right? We all know that, that it makes us want to spit it right into the sink. That's what Jesus is saying here. Um, it's why he would use the language of spitting the church out of his mouth. And notice that he doesn't use this language with any other church as we've worked through the course of this series, that Jesus doesn't use the language of being nauseated with the church in Ephesus whose affections had fizzled out. He doesn't use the language of being nauseated with the church in Pergamum and Thyatira, both of which had become theologically and morally compromising. He doesn't use the language of being nauseated with the church focused on reputation management in Sardis, that apparently nothing is more nauseating to Jesus than an inoculated, apathetic group of people who call themselves Christ followers. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, The great curse of the church that which brings more dishonor upon the Lord than all the ribald jests of scoffing atheists. The great curse of the church is the lukewarmness of its members. We wonder why people aren't experiencing more and more of Jesus. We live in the land where there are churches everywhere, don't we? I mean, it's hard to drive more than a quarter mile without seeing the next building. But I would argue that the number of buildings doesn't remotely communicate the amount of gospel saturation in an area. 
And I think we're hyper-church, but we're under, we're under gospel. That many of us are inoculated to Jesus. We've gotten just enough of him to fight off the, the full force of him for the rest of our lives. And then we call others into that. That inoculation breeds more inoculation. That the evangelistic message becomes, you need your Jesus shot like me. And then for the rest of your life, whatever it looks like, you got your ticket, you're good, so just go about your business. And that's what we replicate, that's what we multiply here in this culture. And the scariest part of it all is that these people in Laodicea are blind to their own blindness. Look at verse 17 again. It says this, it says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That Laodicea was unquestionably wealthy from a material standpoint. Going back to what I said before, they were the big banking center of, of Asia Minor. They had their woolen garments that they made. At one point, you remember the earthquake that we talked about that took out a couple of cities we've looked at in this series thus far? That those particular cities had to go tap Rome and say, hey, can you help us to rebuild our city because we can't do it ourselves? Laodicea didn't have to do that. They had enough wealth that they were able to bring it together and rebuild their own city and they wanted to do it that way because they were self-sufficient. They had that, that mentality of self-sufficiency. They wanted to make sure that, that the Roman Empire understood we can take care of ourselves. You can imagine them getting this letter and reading it and thinking to themselves, poor, but we have our banking centers. Blind, but we have our eye surgeons and, and medicines. Naked. But we have our wool factories, and our wool is even better than those guys out there because our wool comes in different colors that we can sell for even more money than all those uh, cities that surround us. Jesus says, you're beggars despite your banks. You're blind despite your eye surgeons and medicines. You're naked despite your wool factories. You're beggars because your wealth can't buy your way into the kingdom of God. You're naked because your woolen garments can't cover your sin and shame. You're blind because your eye sur surgeons and medicines can't help you to see your own inoculation, your own indifference, your own apathy. When you and I determine, as a side note, that we're going to go at this thing called Christianity alone, this is what happens. Um, let, let, me, let me just throw this out there because this is a time of year where people are relocating. They're trying to figure out, where do I land? How do I do this thing? I'm new to this area. Um, how do, we, how do we press in? How do we engage? How do we find a home? Um, I would say one of the worst things that you could possibly do for the sake of your soul is to shop the church for an extended period of time. Um, I'm not saying don't go check out a few churches, try to figure out where you land, but I would say this, that they're called blind spots for a reason. We can't see them ourselves. We deeply need the community of believers surrounding us. And the longer that you weigh out your options, the longer you go without the God-ordained means of your own sanctification, namely the community of faith that can walk with you and help you to walk in repentance and faith, looking at Jesus and preaching the gospel to yourselves. Or maybe you're here and you're going, man, I'm, I'm regular. This is my thing. I do this. I get up every Sunday. I come. I sit in this, this building, and, and I listen to the preached word of God. I'm in this thing, but maybe you haven't pressed further into community, and I would say that's just as, as devastating, that the way we've designed community groups as a philosophy of ministry for our church is not just so that we can uh, do the cute thing of meeting in a home and eating a meal and, and calling it Bible study, but, but rather, even as we plow into the fall, you're going to find out there, there are a few 
tweaks that we're making going into the fall so that it'll be very hard for you to not engage your blind spots for the sake of God's glory and your own joy as we move forward. So that's a shameless plug for community groups. That, that's the other thing outside of the church gather that we try to do well. Um, we don't always do it perfectly, but we're seeking to do that well. And so as we jump back into the fall and we, we jump into another round of community groups, if you're not in one, I would implore you to get engaged in one so that you don't become blind to your own blindness if that's not already become an issue in your life. Community is beautiful, and God designed us to walk not in isolation, but with other people who deeply love Jesus and are about his, his mission and his gospel. Apparently, Laodicea continued to ignore their blind spots. They didn't listen. And so we're told by Archbishop Trench that uh, all has perished now. He who removed the candlestick of Ephesus has rejected Laodicea out of his mouth. The fragments of aqueducts and theaters spread over a vast extent of country tell of the former magnificence of this city. But of this once famous church, nothing survives. Now think about that. Go back to what I said just a moment ago. This is the church that had apostolic intercession one of the, the apostles of Jesus Christ himself praying for them. Could you imagine if you had the Apostle Paul praying for Cross Point Peachtree City, that she would thrive, that she would do well for the sake of God's glory, that you had Peter or James or John who were on their knees weekly praying for us as a church. You'd feel really good, wouldn't you? This is the church, remember, that had uh, access to the original manuscript of the book of Colossians. They, 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 didn't, uh, they didn't have to... Uh, attempt to go through translation, try to figure out what, what really played out here, what's the context here. They knew the city that it was even written to. It was right down the street. They could look at that letter in context and understand what Jesus was trying to say. And yet, this church failed to heed Jesus' warning, and they no longer exist today. That should be sobering for you and for I. How much more prone are we to wander away from the gospel and, and to have a very brief history as a church, if we're not cautious to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and to walk with one another so that we can see our own blind spots in the way that we're rebellious and wander from the very gospel of Jesus Christ. In light of Jesus' rebuke, now let's, let's hit the reverse button and go back to the way Jesus describes himself in this letter because I think it'll be helpful for us. In verse 14, Jesus describes himself as the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. That the word amen in the Bible means truly or so be it. That if you've read the Gospels, you've seen Jesus' statement over and over again, right? Truly, truly, I say to you. And so Jesus is saying amen, essentially, in, in those moments that you read in the Gospels. But here he's not saying amen. He's saying I am the amen. He's saying I am the personification of truth. That we all long for certainty in a world filled with uncertainty, right? I mean, can we... Can most of us at least agree that there's great uncertainty in our lives? I mean, I don't know where you are, but I have a 13-month-old and a 12-day-old. My life is just riddled with uncertainty at this point. I have no clue as to how tomorrow is going to play out, much less the week after that, the month after that, the year after that. We're in, we're in the, the realm of church planting where you can't possibly begin to wrap your mind around where this thing is going to be six months from now as we're seeking to build an infrastructure and launch this rocket off the ground. Um, there's great uncertainty in my life personally. There's great doubt that I experience often. I would imagine that you're probably in that place too. And oftentimes we welcome that on ourselves, right? Because we're apathetic to, to the one true certainty that we can grab hold of in the midst of our doubt, the one 
assurance that we have, we become apathetic toward Jesus as we passionately pursue all other things that can't possibly bring us certainty in the end, that can't possibly bring us assurance in the end. We, we oftentimes have it so backwards in our minds and in our hearts. And Jesus here is saying, you want to know where you can find unshakability for your life? You want to know where you can find certainty for your life? You want to know where you can find assurance? The answer, me, Jesus says. I'm the amen. I'm the so be it of every promise that, that can bring you hope because I've secured every one of those promises myself. Write down this verse, 2 Corinthians 1.20. Read it this week. It says this, all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That we pursue anything and everything other than Jesus with, with great passion. Think, find hope in those things, and yet the one hope that we have, one that we can look to for certainty, is Jesus. He's saying, wake up, I'm the answer, I'm the amen here. And he goes on to say, I'm the faithful and true witness. That, that, that's just simply an, a further unpacking of what it means to be the amen, that on the one hand, Jesus is distinguishing himself from the unfaithful, false witness of the church in Laodicea, that to live a life of apathetic indifference and calling other people to that while professing to be a Christ follower is the epitome of, of uh, false witness. And the last thing complacent, apathetic people want to hear is that they're complacent, that they're apathetic, right? I don't know about you. I don't like to hear things like that, especially when that's true of me. And so another thing Jesus is doing here in referring to himself as faithful and true is he's establishing some authority. He's saying, I have some authority and credibility to speak into your life, to say when I see it, I'm going to call it like I see it. So if this morning you're hearing all of this and you're going, I think the Holy Spirit is at work in my life. I think it's being revealed to me that I got my Jesus shot and then I've just fended him off for years. If, if you're going, I profess to be a Christ follower, but I think I'm inoculated to Jesus. I think I'm indifferent to the gospel if I'm honest. I think I'm apathetic toward Jesus. I think I'm complacent in my Christianity. If that's you and you're feeling uh, what may be the weight of the Holy Spirit, it probably is the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is never wrong when he assesses our lives, when he assesses our hearts. Jesus says, I have the credibility to do so, and my assessment is spot on. It always is. I'm the perfect God of the universe. But the beauty of that also is what that means is that he's never wrong in his assessment of what he calls us to, to, to bring us back onto the gospel path. That it really is as simple as trusting him at what he says, taking him at his word, so that when he calls us uh, to respond in certain ways, that we can actually believe that and do that and have certainty that uh, Jesus is bringing us back onto the gospel path. Jesus goes on to say that he is the beginning of God's creation, says this in John 1, uh, verses 1 through 3. For those that might say, does that mean that Jesus is a created being? I think the answer would be no, that the very author who wrote the book of Revelation, the Apostle John, also wrote uh, the fourth gospel account that you have in your New Testament. And he begins with these words. He says, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. That what, what John's writing here, uh, as he uses this language of the beginning of God's creation, is that Jesus is the one from whom all creation begins. That he's the preeminent one. He's the ruler of creation. He's the king who's been on the throne since before time began, you might say. And that kind of being deserves our wholehearted bended knee, not our apathetic 
leftovers. Imagine in the midst of your, your perceived wealth, right? Put yourself in the shoes of these people in this church for a second. Imagine in the midst of your perceived wealth being addressed by the eternal deity who created everything, including you and everything you possess. All of a sudden, you don't feel so wealthy anymore, do you? The Lord can give and the Lord can take away. You feel impoverished. You feel your deep need for him. Imagine in the midst of your self-reliance being addressed by the eternal God who sustains your every breath, that the reason that you and I will breathe three seconds from now, our next breath, is because God allows it by his grace. All of a sudden, you don't feel so independent anymore. You feel your deep dependence upon him. You see what Jesus is doing here to this complacent, self-sufficient, apathetic group of people? He's saying, you need me deeply. You need to fix your eyes back on me. He says it this way in verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined with fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes. This is another word for ointment so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. That on the one hand, Jesus says, buy from me. That this statement is Jesus calling his people to dependence upon him. He's calling his followers to leave behind self-sufficiency and self-delusion and to acknowledge their deep dependency and need for him. That in the marketplace of commercialism, which was the city of Laodicea, it's the city of Peachtree City as well, right? The city of Atlanta, uh, we're highly commercial. Jesus is saying, turn from your other suppliers. I have everything that you could possibly need. In the midst of your spiritual poverty, I can make you rich. And to be rich, by the way, is simply to seek and savor Jesus, to treasure Jesus, to know Jesus. Jesus says, I can clothe your spiritual nakedness and shame with something better than fig leaves, with, with whatever it is that you're trying to, to uh, establish a cover-up over the things that aren't so perfect in your life. Jesus says, I can do better than that. I can clothe you in my righteousness. Jesus says, I can heal your spiritual blindness and help you to see things as they really are. I can remove the blinders so that you see your own inoculation, so that you see your own apathy, so that you see your own indifference, that only Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can turn apathetic people into passionate, wholehearted people. John Stott says it this way. Says he can open our eyes, Jesus can open our eyes to perceive a spiritual world of which we have never dreamed. He can cover our sin and shame and make us fit to partake of the inheritance of the saints in light. He can enrich us with life and life abundant. He goes on to say, in a word, he can save us. He has died for us and risen again. Through his death, we can be cleansed, and through his living presence within us, we can be changed. Now, how does that happen? Jesus says, buy from me, and then he says, you're impoverished. You don't have any money. That's not fair, is it? It's incredibly unfair of Jesus to say that. Here's the beauty of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that the currency of the kingdom is simply faith, acknowledging your deep need and dependence upon Jesus. That if you're a Christian, the way you became a Christian is not by bringing your moralistic currency to the table and saying, hey, look, look, God. Look what I have to offer you. And, and then God looked down and said, I want him or her on my team because look at that currency. There's a pile of it. That's not how you became a Christian, right? If you're a Christian, you know that the only thing that you brought to the table was your sin and the empty hands of faith. And you said, Jesus, I need you. You lived the life that I could not possibly live, a perfect, righteous life. You died my death in my place. 
that my sins were put upon you. You were punished in my place, and you rose conquering sin and death for me, and I trust in you and bring faith to the table and nothing more. That that's the currency of the kingdom of God, a dependency on Jesus, a need for Jesus, acknowledging by faith that he's your only hope. If you're not a Christian, that's what we're calling you to here. We're calling you to lay down your arms, your moralistic arms. We're calling you to lay down your currency. And we're calling you to look to Jesus and and to say, I've got nothing but my sin in the empty hands of faith. Will you save me? Will you respond as Savior? Will you be my king? I want to bend my knee to you. That's the beauty, beauty of the currency of the kingdom of God. And if you are a Christian, that's not just how you get into the kingdom of God. It's how you live for the rest of your life. You keep leaning on in dependency upon your good and sovereign king, Jesus, upon the one who shed his blood to save you. That's, that's Christianity. We walk in faith and repentance for the rest of our lives until we die, growing in our awareness of God's holiness and our awareness of our own sin. And the cross just keeps looming larger and larger and larger. And we keep seeing our deep need for Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us. Jesus says, buy from me with your currency of faith. Come to me with your empty hands and buy. But he also says, be zealous and repent. The word repent here, I won't get all nerdy on you in the Greek, but it basically means uh, a definitive moment in time. That it means to definitively turn uh, from sin and self to Jesus. It means definitively, if this is you, acknowledging your spiritual apathy before God. It means not going into lawyer mode, trying to, uh, to argue your way out of or rationalize your apathy. It means owning it. It means definitively acknowledging that you got your Jesus shot when you were a kid and have managed to successfully fight off the real Jesus ever since, if that's you. That's a part of repentance here. It means definitively acknowledging that you've been content having a, a, a glimpse at and access to a life-enhancing Jesus so long as you don't have to come face-to-face with a life-altering Jesus. It means definitively feeling the regret and sorrow Deepen your affections for your apathy, for your indifference, for your half-heartedness. It means owning that feeling. Repentance means definitively confessing your apathy to God in the community of believers he surrounded you with. And it means ultimately definitively abandoning apathy and complacency. It means saying, I'm no longer content with the vaccine. I want all of you, Jesus. And maybe that's the takeaway this morning, if nothing else, for, for many of us in this room. And then it's fighting for a zealousness for Christ for the rest of your life because you are prone to wander. That's why we sing that great hymn. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We're always uh, finding ourselves veering away from the gospel path, experiencing gospel drift. And so Jesus says, not only repent, but be zealous. And, and that in the Greek is a continuous action. Repenting is a definitive thing, but there's a continuous action that takes place where Jesus says, keep fanning the flame of zeal for Christ. It means never settling for less than all of me, pursuing me with reckless abandon. And Jesus says all of this not, not because uh, he's ultimately angry. Um, he doesn't come at this church without any form of encouragement or commendation um, because he, he ultimately is just ready to smite them, to just start launching thunderbolts at Laodicea. But rather, we're told in verse 19, he says all that he says because he loves them. Look at verse 19. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. That Jesus is saying everything that he says to this church because he loves them. That apparently 
Love can motivate the statement, you make me want to throw up. Now, don't go say that to your spouse this week, but apparently love can motivate a statement like that. That, that Jesus is saying, I love you way too much to allow you to keep living a life of apathetic, indifferent, complacent Christianity. That in doing so, you're wasting your life away. And I love you too much to let you do that. Hebrews 12.10 says this about the discipline of God for his children. It says, God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. That the church in Laodicea was missing out on a sharing of God's holiness. And Jesus says, I love you too much to allow that to happen. Hebrews 12 goes on to say this. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That it may be painful rather than pleasant to hear Jesus say that your life and doctrine nauseate him. I would imagine that would be painful to hear if the Holy Spirit's doing work. It may be painful rather than pleasant to come face to face with the reality that you're inoculated to Jesus. But it's more painful to leave you where you are. Jesus loves you way too much to do that. So he says what he says in order to wake us up so that we might experience true Christianity. Not this cultural Christianity of the Bible Belt where we just kind of check our boxes and do our thing week in and week out, but remain completely inoculated to the real deal. And here's the beauty of this text, as if the rest of it wasn't beautiful enough. In calling us to wake up, Jesus makes some insane promises to us as we close this morning. Look at Verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. That The first thing that Jesus promises is a seat at the table. Um, l- let me stop for a second and say this passage um, has been used as an evangelistic plea by many in the church for the last couple thousand years. And, and if you became a Christian by way of this passage, glory be to God. Don't want to discredit that. That's amazing. Happy that, that you're a part of the kingdom, the family. But... In context, this is not an evangelistic passage. Jesus is addressing those who are on the receiving end of loving fatherly discipline, going back to verse 19. And biblically, fatherly discipline is always for the child of God as you read the scriptures. That Most commentators agree that this is not an evangelistic plea, but rather Jesus' pursuit to reestablish intimacy with his people as they turn from their half-heartedness, as they turn from their apathy, as they turn from their indifference. Sam Storms in his commentary says it this way. He says, In an expression of indescribable condescension and love, Jesus asked permission to enter and reestablish fellowship with his people, a fellowship portrayed in the imagery of a feast in which Christ and Christians share. That Put it to you this way. If you feel like you're out of fellowship with Jesus, he's knocking on the door of your heart right now. If you feel like you're apathetic, you're indifferent toward Jesus and his gospel, he's knocking on the door of your heart right now. If you feel like you got your dose of Jesus, your Jesus shot back in the day, and you've somehow managed to fend him off, the real him, the fullness of him, uh, for the, the remainder of your days up until now, he's knocking right now saying, let's do this thing. Let's have a, a, a fellowship of intimacy with one another. The question is, will you open the door of your heart to all of him? John Stott, in his commentary, says it this way. He says, if we do open the door of our heart to Jesus Christ and let him in, he will bring an end to our beggary. He will transform us from paupers into princes. He will cleanse us and clothe us. He will eat with us, and we shall be permitted to eat with him. That he should bid us come and eat with him is honor enough, but, but that he should, sorry, but that he should wish 
to share our humble board and eat with us is wonder beyond our finite understanding. That Christianity is about an intimate relationship with the God who created you and who redeemed you with his blood. And he wants all of you. And he wants you to give all of yourself to him. And he goes on to say in verse 21, The one who conquers, I will grant with him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That it's not just about a seat at the table, um, a seat of intimacy with Jesus, but it's also about a seat on the throne. That, that here Jesus affirms that he's the uh, sin-conquering, serpent-crushing, defeater of death. That he says, as I conquered and now sit with my Father on his throne, that for those who persevere in the faith, that they will sit with me on my throne. I, I, I honestly don't know what to do with that. I mean, it's so audacious of a promise it's too lavish. It's really quite insane for Jesus to say that. And maybe as we dive into next week's passage, where we look at the throne of God, it'll make a little bit more sense. But just taking this at face value, what Jesus says, I don't know how to unpack that for you well. I don't know how to biblically expound that well. That Jesus is saying, if you say no to apathetic, indifferent, complacent Christianity and say yes to a zealous pursuit of an intimate relationship with me, if you fully open your heart to me, I'll open my throne to you. That's crazy, people. That you get to crawl up onto the throne with King Jesus himself. Next week, we'll, we'll finish up this series, and we will look at Revelation chapter 4. So, so let me hit pause on unpacking that promise uh, so that we can have somewhere to go next week. But for now, suffice it to say that it's absolute folly that you and I serve a God who would allow us to sit on his throne with him. There's no other God out there that's worshipped amongst world religions um, and, and pagan philosophers uh, that would adhere to that kind of belief system. Um, God is far too transcendent. He's far too holy other to actually engage us. And yet we know a God who took on human flesh and entered into our world and bridged the gap that we could never possibly bridge between us and him. That's the very gospel, people, that, that Jesus stooped down into our world. That the very scriptures themselves, as Calvin says, is God uh, talking baby talk to us so that we could possibly understand who he is. That's the God you serve. He's a king whose lap you can crawl into. I'll leave you with one final thought from C.S. Lewis in his essay entitled Christian Apologetics. He says this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, none whatsoever. And if true, of infinite importance, the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Are you content with a dose of Jesus, or do you want all of him? As we prepare for communion this morning, uh, as a church, we take communion here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. This is a meal for those who uh, profess uh, to believe and trust in the person and work of Jesus. So if you're a Christian, this meal is for you. Um, it's our collective declaration of who he is and what he's done for us. We proclaim his death until he returns every time we take communion. And so if you're a Christian, you're invited to participate in this meal. Let me, let me leave you with some questions as you prepare for that, um, which will happen momentarily. Question number one, are you inoculated to Jesus and his gospel? Did you get just enough of Jesus to feel like you don't need all of him? Did you get a mild form of the gospel, just enough for your soul to fight off the real strand when he shows up? Are you after a life-enhancing Jesus or a life-altering Jesus? 
Secondly, is your Christianity refreshing to the spiritually weary like the cold waters of Colossae? Does your Christianity bring healing to the spiritually sick like the medicinal hot waters of Hierapolis? Or is your Christianity useless and distasteful like the lukewarm waters of Laodicea? Third, are you pressing into community so that your eyes might be open to your blind spots? Or have you been shopping the church for for way too long, standing on the peripheral edges of community? Fourth, do you see your spiritual poverty and your deep need for dependence upon the Lord? Or are you self-sufficient, leaning on no one, including God himself, white-knuckling every aspect of your life, you might say? Five, are you... Are you in fellowship with Jesus or are you out of fellowship with Jesus, apathetic toward Jesus, knowing that that Jesus is knocking? Will you open the door of your heart to all of him this morning? And then lastly, what would it look like for us to wake up from our inoculated, apathetic state and zealously pursue a relationship with the one who died for us? What would it look like for us as a church if we bought into that? What would it look like for this community and the surrounding areas if we actually engaged Jesus and his gospel in that way? And then if you're not a Christian, I'll just leave you with this. Um, I would implore you not to make your assessment of Christianity based on all of the inoculated, apathetic, professing Christ followers out there. Please, if you hear nothing else that I say, make your assessment of Christianity based on the Christ of Christianity. The one who lived the life that you could not possibly live. The one who died your death and the one who rose from death so that you could have a seat at the table and a seat on the throne. Will you come to him with your currency of of sin and faith and nothing more this morning? Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S. P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.